Well, we've completed the core, the core nugget of the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain combination. You say, well, we have a whole lot more in Matthew to go to get through the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, we do. But we've completed the core of the portion that Luke distributes to the same place. From this point on, we're going to see some interesting characteristics. How Luke distributes elements from the Sermon on the Mount throughout the rest of his gospel. And probably not today, but maybe next week, I'll give you a chart that shows how Luke did that, how Luke distributed the remaining elements from the Sermon on the Mount throughout his gospel. And let me just show you on the board kind of how he did it graphically. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew, and it's this nice, humongous chunk of material right here going all the way down to about here, this nice, large chunk. Luke, it's found right here. And it's, you notice it's a heck of a lot smaller because what he has done is he's taken the same amount of material, put a chunk of it here at the beginning, and then distributed the rest of it throughout the rest of his gospel. Oftentimes in sequential order similar to that which you get here, but just distributed throughout the teaching and travel narrative in Luke's gospel. So what we're going to do today is look at a couple of instances of this, of some of the more famous sayings, using the sequence found in Matthew as our guide, and uh, looking at how Luke handles it, and looking at how the differences affect our interpretation. We'll see how many we get. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. Hmm. That's a very familiar statement, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You are the salt of the earth. God, you've heard it from God's spell. I mean, this church, if no other, this church knows it from God's spell. That's where you know it from. Now, put a marker, a thumb, a finger, or something there. Or a pin or anything. And then flip over to Luke 14, 34. Here we have an example of where Luke is distributing the sayings from that body of teaching material, the common source, throughout the rest of his gospel in other sections linked to other stories. Luke 14, 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. <laughs> Here. <laughs> Literal Greek is an idiomatic phrase which could be translated with the idiomatic phrase uh, poop pile. Oh. <laughs> um, it is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. They throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear 
listen. That's fascinating. You notice, notice what is left out. That phrase that we all know so well. You are the salt of the earth. From Matthew, Luke doesn't include it. Instead, he says something different. Salt is good. Salt is good, unless you have high blood pressure. Salt yeah. is good. On popcorn, salt is good. <laughs> not MSG, not monosodium glutamate, <laughs> but sodium chloride. Salt is good. I think that's fascinating. That sounds like a wonderful label or moniker for um, uh, Morton Salt Corporation. Salt is good. When is salt bad unless it's when you have blood pressure or something? Salt causes the retention of fluid yeah. in the human yeah. body. Hence, it's very bad for people with high blood pressure. It's extremely bad for people who have malfunctioning kidneys. Uh, you don't, it, you, it too, first of all, too much of anything is not good. Even too much of a good thing is bad. And uh, those of us who are more than a few pounds over, uh, we know that. <laughs> we know that. Too much of pizza is not a good thing, <laughs> even though pizza is good. All right. Now, that's how, notice, that's how Matthew and that's how Luke handled it. I want to read it again in Matthew. I want you to follow in Luke. So turn to Luke, and I'm going to read it in Matthew. This is one of the neat ways to do parallel reading, by the way, is to hear the other one while you read an equivalent close version in, in, the, other, in, in the other. So read, follow in Luke 14, 34, and 35 while I read Matthew 13. You are, uh, 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. Which is more graphic? That one you just read. The Matthew version? The manure pile is pretty <laughs> The poop pile is pretty, pretty graphic. The Matthew... The Matthew... The Matthew has a visual action graphic. Trampled underfoot, that phrasing, has some interesting strength to it. It's trampled underfoot. It is so worthless, you walk across it. You don't use it, it gets ground into the mud and is worthless. It's not good for anything. But we can say the same thing in, in, in the way in which Luke articulates it. It is fit neither, uh, go, go to Matthew 5.13 and read that, follow along there while I read aloud Luke 14.34 and 35. So follow in Matthew 5.13 while I read Luke 14.34-35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. They throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. Now, do both passages say the same thing, essentially? Mm -hmm. Yes, basically. Uh-huh, they do. With one minor nuance difference. Well, Matthew says you 
salt of the earth. It doesn't say salt is good. Correct. That, and what does that mean? Matthew seems to draw a closer connection between what we are to do as disciples and the character of salt. Salt is a preservative. Salt is spicy. Salt brings several attributes. It tastes good and it preserves things. It's salted meat, for instance, which was the only way that meat could be stored back then. So it has a preservative quality and it also makes things taste good to us. And so those two factors can be then used when you say you are the salt of the earth to then speak about disciples and their job, their role, which is to spice up life, but also to preserve life. You lose that ability with Luke's version. You just get salt is good. Not you are the salt. You are like salt. You are to play the role of salt. But just salt is good. Then the rest of it effectively is the same. Even if he uses different idiomatic phrasings to indicate that, that, that salt that's lost its saltiness is worthless. Which, by the way, if you use Matthew's version, you can then utilize that as a warning. Be careful. If you've lost your zest for life and your preservative qualities, if you stop working for the good of all and you start hating life, you, you become worthless. You can use that with Luke too, but Matthew communicates it better. This is good. He's using sensory pleasures so people understand this mm -hmm. so they relate to it better. Going back to Jesus, Jesus is using something that people can relate to intimately in their own lives. The worthfulness, the, the incredible importance of salt. But they also are aware of when salt goes bad, how bad it can be. And they have a fabulous illustration of that in the Dead Sea. Yeah. Okay, now it would be so easy if this was only found in Matthew and Luke because you could then say, aha, this is one of those classic sections that's just completely blue, i.e. saying source material. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Let's use Matthew for our comparative and go, so keep your finger on Matthew 5.13 and turn to Mark 9.49. Nine forty-nine. Notice, this is a long way away from where we are, essentially in Mark's gospel, where we have been district, where most of the Sermon on the Mount is located in the narrative. Mark nine forty-nine and fifty. For everyone will be salted with fire. Hmm. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Interesting, isn't it? 
I want you to look at Matthew as your comparative because of that interesting difference. Mark includes the phrase at verse 50, salt is good, which is found in Luke. Where is you are the salt of the earth? It's not in the Mark original. But both have both tossed out some stuff and both have added stuff in to an extent. I think Mark kind of messed it up. <laughs> he I'm, added another dimension. I'm going to ask you to... I, you know what? I, I'm going to tell you this, and I'm going to tell you this flat out. I'm going to give it away because your statement is, 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 you know, getting close is only good in horseshoes and nuclear weapons. But in this case, it's true too. You're on fire, honey. Because the question has long been, where did Matthew and Luke get this? Did they get it from Mark? Or did they get it from another common source and reject Mark's altogether? Or mostly? I'm of the opinion with one group, and, and scholars are split on this almost evenly, so just toss a coin, pay your money and take your choice kind of bit. I'm of the opinion that Matthew and Luke are drawing this from the saying source. It's one of those pieces of the saying source, one of the teachings of Jesus that got into both Mark and Luke. It's a saying that resonated with people so much that even Peter repeated it a lot and it got into the gospel that followed his teaching. Mark. And it was repeated so much that it got into the saying source. It may have, using salt as an illustration, may have been such a strong one in Jesus' ministry that it got latched onto by both streams of thought. It's one of those few teachings that's found in Mark. One of those a couple of dozen little teachings, little aphoristic teachings that's found in Mark. That's also found in the saying source material. But in the saying source material, it's more complete. It's a little stronger. It makes a little more sense. Whereas in Mark, it tends to be more anemic. And that's what we're seeing here. Looking at Mark again, for everyone will be salted with fire. Ooh, ick, poo. I don't want to be barbecued. Then he says everyone will be salted with fire. But now think about it. Fire has multiple meanings. Fire is useful, keeps you warm. You can cook with fire. Fire can be used as a weapon. It can be used for defense in many different ways, against bugs and against people. But fire also is very important for uh, making metals, strengthening things. It is used as a metaphor for being strengthened. Paul uses it as a metaphor when he says, faith tried in the fire. So it has multiple meanings, and most of them are positive ones, interestingly enough. So don't react negatively to verse 49 immediately, even though that's my first intention. But it might have been misunderstood. Notice the next verse. It sounds like at first it comes straight, you know, Luke copies him directly. And Luke may have been affected by it. Salt is good. 
But if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Notice how he diverges, Luke diverges from that almost immediately. And he does it exactly like Matthew does. That's an indicator right there that they're both using something common that's not in Mark. It's not likely they would have both edited Mark exactly the same way. Notice, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? How likely is it that two completely independent authors are going to take this Mark passage and edit it exactly the same way to produce exactly the same statement, changing the phrasing of the first? Not likely at all. Not likely at all. Unless they have something else that contains this different phrasing. The common source, Q. And that's why I happen to think that Matthew and Luke, while they know the Mark inversion, have decided not to use it principally and instead follow the Q version. How can saltiness be restored? How can saltiness be restored? How can you resalt something that is dead? How can you bring back that taste, in other words? Or to use the Mark version, if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? So the salt is the metaphor for, for, your, for, for you, for your character? For your faith, for your character, for your life with God, for your willingness to be a disciple and do the things that God has called you to do and be. That is true across the board. It's true in Mark version and it's true in Matthew and Luke. How can you season it? Actually, the language is, is, is a little different in the Greek. It ought to be probably translated re-season it. <laughs> Notice what he then says. Have salt in yourselves. That's really kind of weird. Mm -hmm. Have salt in yourselves. Some, some scholars have said that is reflected in Matthew, you are the salt of the earth. We, we much rather have sugar, we want to be sweeter. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the salt preserves, yeah. therefore be right. preserved. Have salt in yourself. But it's, some scholars have said, Matthew pulls, you are the salt of the earth from here. I think it's slightly different. I think Peter, who is the source for Mark, Peter is articulating in that phrasing what the Q source remembers, you are the salt of the earth. And Luke, reading from the Q source, for whatever reason preferred Mark's salt is good. And that's the one place where Mark influenced Luke in changing the beginning of the phrase. I, I tend to believe that, and maybe it's just my prejudice in favor of Matthew here in terms of Matthew's reading, but I tend to think that that phrasing, have salt in yourselves, was Peter's recollection of Jesus speaking in that phrasing, you are the salt of the earth. 
but which is the stronger saying, which, which saying actually makes more sense in context, which saying actually resonates more, it's the one that resonates with us. You are the salt of the earth. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Oh, where'd that come from? Is it in either of those? No. And what is it in, in, the, in the Mark version? It doesn't deal with, the, doesn't give any strength, any nuance, any resonance on the issue of what happens to salt when it loses its saltiness. It simply says, but if salt is lost as its saltiness, how can you reseason it? What sounds more like what a, what a traveling evangelist like Jesus would do and say is, you know, salt is worthless when it's lost its taste. It's, it, it's not good for anything, but it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. It belongs in the poop pile. It's worthless and it's thrown away. Hmm. I, I, tend, I, I, I agree with my original uh, following from the group that says that Matthew and Luke are basing their version more on what they're getting from Q. This is an example of where a, Mark contains a teaching of Jesus. Remember, Mark is mostly the life and actions of Jesus with some teachings interspersed but it's mostly miracles and Jesus went here and Jesus healed here and Jesus delivered here and Jesus taught but not so much what he taught with some important exceptions and we see a bunch of these important exceptions it's as if Matthew has gathered them together in one section pulling them from where they belong in Mark Whereas Luke leaves them in place and attaches teachings to them instead. This is one of them. That he's pulled from 9 all the way back to where we are back in chapter 3, 4 of Mark. And pulled it out of its context in the Mark version and paralleled it with the teaching from Q. If you want to do it that way. Um, I don't see much of any of Mark in Matthew. Uh, in, in, from this saying. I see an influence in Luke where it says salt is good. Which, by the way, I like. <laughs> I like this thing. It, that is a, one of my favorite sayings that could go on a bumper sticker along with all the fat belongs to Yahweh from, from Leviticus <laughs> where it says all the fat belongs to the Lord and do not eat of the fat but instead burn it on the altar for as a burnt offering to the Lord and all of it is reserved for God. I love that saying, all the fat belongs to the Lord. I mean, that's one of my favorite <laughs> sayings. Okay, a lot of it belongs to God then. <laughs> okay. Um, questions on this saying? I think that all three teach more or less the same thing. Matthew does it very well. Luke does it very well, but in a slightly different way. Mark is weaker, but certainly not as is illustrative. Well, let's keep going in Matthew, picking up exactly where we were, Matthew five fourteen. <coughs> And here we have another famous saying. 
14, 15, and 16 of Matthew. You are the light of the world. Well, that's interesting. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's quite strong. That's a fabulous teaching or preaching style. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. Think about it. In, the, in Israel, in Judea, and in Galilee at this time, most of your cities, not all, but most of your cities were built on the top of hills. Nazareth was built on the top of a hill. So is uh, uh, Megiddo on top of a hill. Lots of uh, Cana's on the top of a hill. These are for defense purposes? Or? They are defensive. But you can't hide a city when it sits on the top of a hill either. You can see it from all around. Up and down the Jezreel Valley, you can look and see Nazareth. You can't miss it. It's very visible all the way across the valley, way up the valley towards the Mediterranean, all the way down towards um, the Jordan Valley. You can see Nazareth from either direction. Today, it, it, you can see it easily. Back then, you could too. More so, probably, because you'd see smoke from fires. You don't see that today. It's those cities that are in the valleys. They're easy to attack, but they're hidden. So you kind of have a, an alternate form of defense. You've got your mountains that defend, help defend. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. Alternate modern translation. When you turn on your lamp, you don't put a blanket over it. You let it sit out and let people, so it brings light to the room. So that people can see by it. And it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now... Indicative of sourcing. Does this follow closely along from the previous verse in Matthew 5, 13? You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. That follows fabulously along. It's tightly knit. Indicative that it is a Q-source material. Comes from the common teaching source. It's closely related. You're, you're, to, you're to be preservative and bring zest to life. You are to be a light so that all, I mean, you're, you're supposed to be high up so all can see you. You're on display. A city on the hill cannot be hid. You light your light and you set it out for all to see so the world can see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Not to you, to God up in heaven. All of this is interrelated material. Closely related material. Unfortunately, and it, and it flows beautifully. Unfortunately, 
Luke decided to distribute this stuff out. With a finger on 5.14, turn to Luke 8.16. The previous one was in Luke 14.34. Now we're going to Luke 8.16. And by comparison, that's also two chapters away from where that large chunk of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain material was in Luke. So this is material that's been distributed throughout Luke's Gospel by Luke. Luke 8, 16. No one after lighting a lamp hides it under a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. Well, that's extremely parallel to verse 15, isn't it, of, of Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 15 is extremely parallel to Luke 8, 16. Slightly nuanced, slightly different. You can see how the two different authors copying from a common source could easily adjust these two to make it apply a little better. But Luke has left out that beautiful phrase, you, uh, you are the light of the world, a city built on a hill cannot be hid. Wish he had said that, but he, he doesn't include that for whatever reason. Don't turn there, but listen. In Luke eleven thirty three, there's another parallel. He does it twice. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. Jesus was just like me and like other preachers. We use the same illustration multiple times in multiple locations for multiple reasons. Big shock, eh? Huh. So Luke 8.16 and Luke 11.33 both contain essentially the same thing based upon the same sourced material that Matthew uses in 5.15. But Luke nowhere uses that you are the light of the world phrasing. Now, again, this would be wonderful if we didn't have a mark parallel too, but we do. <laughs> However, it's extremely short. Um, keep your Luke 8.16 fingered or mark or whatever. and turn to Mark 4.21. He said to them, Mark 4.21, He said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under the bushel basket or under the bed and not on the lampstand? Hmm. Very similar in one respect to Matthew, bushel basket gets used. But also slightly different, under the bed and not on the lampstand. Well, Mark is a little bit like Luke mm -hmm. in that right above it they're talking about the seeds. Mm -hmm. The context there, Luke has... See, what Luke does here is he's spreading Mark out more 
and inserting the sayings at similar <coughs> spots. All right. And the expansions at similar spots. Whereas Matthew was gathering them together from across Mark and using the cue source sequence to, get, to guide him in that. So again, what Matthew is doing, since he's following the sequence and cue more closely and clumping this chunk of material together, is he is pulling the what few parallels exist in Mark in the teaching material to where he is in the clumped material in, in his version. Luke is just allowing the sequence in Mark to be spread out more and inserting material from the teaching source, not as clumped together, but more dispersed. Not always in the same sequence, but frequently in the same basic sequence, if not right up next to each other. Notice, Matthew does a much better job of interpreting this, providing an interpretation. And the question exists, is the interpretation Matthew's? Possibly. It may be that the interpretation isn't in Q, and Matthew is providing it here. That's going to be harder to determine, and there are scholars who go either way. Thoughts? So, in Matthew, he's, he's, he's teaching his disciples. Yes. He's, so, is it the same thing this in is, Mark? And, uh, in Matthew, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. In Mark, it's it, these little sayings are distributed out to whoever's present, often his disciples, but other people are hearing it too. In Luke, it's also distributed out, and it's the same kind of audiences. It's not clumped together. This is why he's telling them, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. This is to get them going this is, to evangelize. This, this is, yes, he is laying his program in front of them. He's laying his, his entire ministry program in front of them. In Luke, it's being distributed throughout the whole gospel itself. Whereas Matthew is doing the easier thing and including a humongous chunk of it in one spot. Let's turn to Matthew 5.17. Matthew 5.17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven.
That's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? That's kind of uncomfortable. Uh, unless you realize, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, what were the scribes and Pharisees attempting to obtain? What, they were, what were they trying to do with their good works and their study of, of the Torah? Interpret the law. They were trying to interpret the law. What, for what purpose? So, so they'd go to heaven. So they'd go to heaven so that they could be righteous. They were trying to establish their own righteousness. They were trying to be good according to the law. They tried to know and understand what it was God required of them so that they could do it and therefore be found righteous by God. Well, is that righteousness? Or is that imitation? Is that righteousness or is that self-righteousness? Is that true righteousness that comes from God? Or is it a righteousness of human division and human understanding human interpretation, human application, human selection. You're doing one thing but not doing another thing. We see that all the time, by the way. They were doing it for their uh, benefit. They were doing it for their own benefit, precisely, rather than for God. True righteousness focuses on God and on God's will and God's calling for us, not upon us and our desire and our objective to get into heaven, kind of bit. There's a big so, difference there. So we see this today in the Muslim, in the jihad and all that stuff. That's their interpretation. It, it, interestingly enough, modern day, modern day uh, jihadist Muslims, and I use that phrase rather than any of the others because the jihadist approach is very much cuts across the Sunni and, and the Shiite frames of reference. Those who believe in jihad as a principal way of life look at it as something that they do for their benefit and for the benefit of, of, of all Islam. And, and they do it because, because the Quran orders them to do it, because Muhammad the Prophet, speaking for Allah, orders them to do it. And they do it because that is what it means to be a good Muslim rather than acting, and it's based on their understanding and their interpretation and their application of the Quran. In a sense, there's a very strong similarity between that attitude and the attitude of many of the scribes and the Pharisees and other religious Jews in Jesus' day who were doing the exact same similar kinds of things based on their own interpretation and understandings of the Torah and what the Torah orders them to do and what Yahweh supposedly orders them to do. And they do it in order to, to attain heaven, the same as, as the interpretation of the jihadist Muslim. In, in, in essence, that is a very frightening interconnection there, but it's, it's strong. The motivation is not because uh, uh, to obtain, to receive righteousness to obtain it but rather to earn it to build it to make it yourself and for yourself the difference is is more than just subtle 
I would say, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And at first that sounds very hard to do and, and to obtain until you realize they have no righteousness. The scribes and Pharisees have no true righteousness. Their righteousness is something that they have built based on their own understanding and their own interpretation rather than allowing God to give them righteousness as a gift by grace freely, which is what Jesus ends up teaching. And this is sort of the beginning of it. How to, where does Make your connection between this righteousness and what comes before with regards to being the salt of the earth, being a light unto the world, a city on the hill. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. What does it mean to fulfill? Bring it about. Bring about. To full, to complete it. To complete. To fulfill means to fill it up, and that thereby completes it, thereby brings it to fruition, thereby brings it, uh, um, ripens it. When a fruit isn't ripened, do you want to pick and eat it? Mm -hmm. Especially for sins. Especially for sins. <laughs> Green, you know, you take you take the bananas down while they're green, and you let them sit and ripen. But you certainly don't eat them until they've turned somewhat yellow. And I think they're even better when they have little spots on them and whatnot. And, you know, you got to wait for a bit before you can eat. They're not ready yet. They're not completed yet. They haven't ripened yet. So also, you could translate this: I have come not to abolish, but to ripen. To complete, to fill up, to bring to fruition the law. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, not one jot, not one tittle. What's an iota? Isn't that in the King James? Is that a letter, Greek letter? Yes. Okay. The Is it the dot over the I? Uh, <laughs> or yes. whatever. Yes. It's a wee bit. Yes. The iota is the letter I in Greek. You know the Greek alphabet. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, osha, kappa, lambda. You heard it. Iota. Iosha. Kappa, lambda. Mu, nuxian, omicron, pyro, sigma, ta, upsilon, phi, keepsi, and omega, two. Greek is what we like to do. Anyway, that's the I. Iota. But unless you put that on it, it ain't completed when you write it. So that's an iota. Written out. And you would probably pronounce that too, and it's written exactly as it would be written, and that's actually written in Greek. That's exactly as it would be written in English, iota. It's the name for this. Alright. Not one jot or tittle. Not how does it read in the King James? Not one um, iota. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or 
one title shall in no way pass from the law. Not shall one. Shall all be fulfilled. Not one jot, not one tittle. Mm -hmm. Not one little element. T-I-T-T-L-E. Not one little element of any of the letters will pass away. By the way, that's a very Hebraic understanding. Each element of the Hebrew language is critical for the meaning of a word. Even though they would they used a shorthand language, consonantal non-volecular language, nevertheless, uh, they viewed the actual writing as being holy in and of itself. And therefore saying, I tell you unless heaven and earth, no, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, not one jot, not one tittle, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Not one iota, not one tittle on the top of it will pass away. It sounds like a teacher, doesn't he? Instead of yeah. talking to a normal person, it sounds like a teacher talking this to, does to sound, a student. <laughs> this sounds like a rabbi talking yeah. to his Hebrew school students. <laughs> Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That right there is a flat-out argument against, you know, you, you do not break the law. And certainly don't teach people to do it. You'll be the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, is he just talking about the Ten Commandments and not the dietary laws? Um, they, when, the law is the law is the law. It's all of it. All of it. I mean, you know, I had a sausage and egg biscuit this morning. <laughs> Oops. Shrimp? We're not supposed to eat shrimp, are we? Nope. I don't. Ham and cheese. <laughs> Do you like your steaks medium, medium rare? Yeah. No. Any no. blood at all? No. no. Do you strangle your chickens or you chop their heads off? <laughs> we, we buy them at the store. You buy them at the store. Do you have more than one kind of 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 plant in your yard? Sure. You're not more supposed to plant one, your fields with more kind of seed. Your materials, are you wearing materials of clothing of mixed threads? Probably. Yeah, polycotton poly blends, cotton yeah. and linen. You know, you're, we, we wear material of multiple kinds of threads. Um, when ladies went into their menstrual cycle, did you have to, did you separate yourself from everybody else? No. No? Well, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Was that, or was it that Bruce ran away? <laughs> you ain't honey. You, you keep guns away. <laughs> Do, does your house have um, have little little um, rails around the roof to keep people from falling off? Oh, no. No? Doesn't? Do you have tassels on your clothing hanging down? Little fringe? No? No. I, I mar the edges of my beard. I only have goatee. That gets me in trouble. Um, thus far, we're batting pretty terribly, aren't we? <laughs> you like catfish? Who likes catfish? Uh -oh. I like catfish. Uh -oh. I eat it, but 
That's I a, grew up with kind that's of a scavenger. Old dietary laws. You like ham? Yeah. Yes. Like sausage? Yes. yes. Um, uh-huh. Turkey pepperoni? sausage? Pepperoni? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I've eaten it before. Ham and uh, 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 cheeseburgers? Yes. Yeah. Not much. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, amazingly, some Jewish people keep a kosher kitchen. Mm-hmm. Some do. Yeah. Do not mix. Uh, yeah, it's true. Two kitchens, one's for yeah, meat, one's for other things. Yeah. You see, that's the the dietary regulations. They only make up a portion of the law. There's the blood purity laws. There are the behavior laws. For instance. We should be paying everybody their daily wage at the end of the day and not holding it up for a month. Banks shouldn't be charging interest. Oh yeah. Uh, I you know you could you could go on and on and on. When you glean your fields, do you leave the edges for the poor people to come through and get their get their uh, supply? Uh, you can't have a row of tomatoes and a row of beans and a. You can't have you know multiple kinds of seed in your field. You're supposed to have one kind of seed for each field. Well, how would you have well, a garden? You don't. You have fields. Thank you. Exactly correct. That's the point. A large percentage of the law is culturally and temporally based. Most of the law, in fact, is based upon the time and the place that it was written and for the people for whom it was written. Now principles can be determined from the law and a lot of people look to the Ten Commandments for that purpose and in point of fact there is a great degree of truth in that. Nevertheless, it the determination of the church over the centuries was that it wasn't keeping the law that was most important. It was faith in Jesus Christ and when you do that you then by nature by God's nature in you keep the law instead of trying to keep the law to make yourself righteous God makes you righteous and then you keep the law which is that which, works better which is better though it's not what goes into your mouth it's what comes out of your mouth yes yeah. that reflects that idea is the Sabbath day made for humans or humans for the Sabbath the Sabbath is made for humans we are the lords of the Sabbath not lorded over by the Sabbath day therefore if 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 it becomes requisite to quote unquote work on this Sabbath day work was one of the biggest most nastiest and hairiest issues for for Jews in their day and age do you work on the Sabbath day well no okay do you take what do you do with the eggs that a chicken lays on the Sabbath day well you can't pick them on the Sabbath you can't obtain, obtain them on the Sabbath day uh, so you don't want to you can't eat those eggs that were laid on the Sabbath day the chicken has to lay them that was work so you can't eat them but you can eat the chicken that grows up from that egg just not the egg you know you can't have scrambled eggs with it all right so that was one of the ways in which they determined those rules. If you broke an arm or a leg on the Sabbath day, to set it would be work. So therefore, you can't set it on the Sabbath day. You can only bind it up. And then you have to wait and set it later. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> 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 
We're so glad Jesus came. <laughs> the, they used to debate over things like that. What did, if a woman if a woman was in labor and gave birth on the Sabbath day? That's not necessarily work. That's a necessity. But you could not cut the cord until after the Sabbath day passed. You couldn't deliver the after unless it came out naturally. You couldn't deliver the afterbirth until after the Sabbath day unless it came out on its own. I'm serious. You could. There were deaths as a result of this. You could not cut the cord until after the Sabbath day. So that teaches us to use our common sense. <laughs> <laughs> the, Even if there's a law, we have they to use used our to they used to debate these types of issues, and it was the debate that's the problem. Instead of utilizing the law as a principle, which guides you, but doesn't rule you. Hence, the Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for the Sabbath idea that that right that which is something we've already heard by the way that that idea kind of governs this whole concept here some people would say that Jesus is a hypocrite because he's broken the gleaning of food which you're not you're not supposed to pick food from the field on the Sabbath day he's taught he's healed on the Sabbath day he's taught on the Sabbath day and he is um, teaching people to therefore do work on the Sabbath day and he's been confronted over this issue already in the storyline. And here he's, sa he's saying, no, you don't do any of that. So he could easily be charged with hypocrisy here. Unless you understand it the way Jesus does. Is it, is it against the Sabbath day regulations to heal on the Sabbath day? Good, or, good answer would be who's doing the healing? We're not. God is. So all hospitals oh, and everything would have to close down. All hospitals would have to close down on Saturday. Yeah. Nurses wouldn't be able to feed anybody. Wow. Couldn't, couldn't. And on the Sabbath day, Jews can't travel more than a certain confined distance from their property, from their home. Hmm. Turn to Luke sixteen sixteen. Luke what? Luke chapter 16, verse 16. Luke chapter 16, verse 16. The law and the prophets were in effect until John came. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is proclaimed. And everyone tries to enter it by force. But it is easier for heaven, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to be dropped. Ah! <laughs> that reads uh, almost 180 degrees differently. One says the law won't pass away. The other says it's simply easier. I notice he says 
Until in Matthew, the, listen to this Matthew, keep staying Luke. Until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all, until all is accomplished. Now, before we push it, just you heard that from Matthew. That does indicate that it will pass away, but all has to be accomplished first. Luke seems to indicate that that's happened. Un the law and the prophets were in effect until John, and by that he means John the Baptist. John came. Since then, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God is proclaimed, and everyone tries to enter it by force. That's weird. Everyone tries to enter it by force, tries to enter the kingdom of God by force. How would that be manifest? Try to enter it by force. By trying to do, trying to get in on your own terms, trying to get in with your own understanding, trying to do what the scribes and Pharisees were doing, which is trying to get in based on their own righteousness, by their own will, by their own way, with their own understanding and their own interpretation of what the law demands and requires of them rather than simply what God has called us to do and be. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to be dropped. You, you, you've got to keep it all. That's another aspect of this. If you are going to be entered into the kingdom of heaven, if you're going to be saved, if you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven by doing, your, by doing the law, by, by doing good works, by, by obeying the law, then you've got to obey all of it. Every little bit of it. Every jot and tittle of it. Every stroke and every letter of it. You can't ignore any part for convenience sake, including some of that law which is, would be culturally conditioned. Because that's part of the law. So if your salvation, if your righteousness, if your place in heaven is dependent upon the law, it has to be dependent upon all of the law. Not just the parts you like. Not just the parts that you want to apply to other people but ignore yourself. Which means nobody would ever go to heaven. Correctamundo. Well, those people, though, that's what they've been taught their whole lives. They're really not guilty of anything except being doing they've, what they were taught. They've, taught. they've been taught this their whole lives, and they've been taught in error. Yeah. And that's what Jesus is essentially coming to correct. Jesus is a coming, to, coming to correct that error. And that's what you have in verse 17. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to be dropped. You can't drop any of it. You've got to keep it. It'll be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for that. If that is your guideline, if that is your method for entering into the kingdom of heaven, then keep it all. Otherwise, you got the good news of the kingdom of God to enter through. Not trying to enter it by force of your own will and ability, but by the good news of the kingdom of God. We're pretty much finished for today. 
We've covered, you know, three very important sayings, all of which are linked together in Matthew. They're all part of the same basic section in Matthew on Sermon on the Mount material. This is the Sermon on the Mount still in Matthew. But notice we're no longer in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. We're now distributing, he's pulling, this material has been distributed throughout his gospel. We had Luke 14.34, Luke 8, and Luke 11, Luke 16. That sounds like it's been distributed throughout, doesn't it? It has been. But this is a sermon we're familiar with. Oh, yeah, we're familiar with all of this material. None of this material is, is new to us. We've heard all of this before. We're used to it from Matthew. Luke distributes it out, which makes it harder to get a grasp on. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.